Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. The first place that I want you to go is to 1 Peter chapter 3, all right? 1 Peter chapter 3. It says in verse 3, Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, when it calls a meek and quiet spirit an ornament, uh, you know, an ornament is something, something pretty that you look at, but... A meek and quiet spirit is not something that, that uh, often is noticeable right away, right? I mean, the things you notice about somebody when you first meet them generally are the outward appearance, right? But, but uh, you, and, and again, I can think of people, and I'm sure you can think of people, that have that kind of a meek and quiet spirit that that verse talks about, and there's, you know, far beyond just the shallowness of the world and the things that people do to try and attract attention and that kind of thing. When, when you know somebody that has that meek and quiet spirit, there's, there's something very attractive about that and something that is not just, not just that shallow outward appearance that, that so quickly fades away, but is something that, that uh, really gives a person substance. And that's, that's what it's saying. It, it says that that meek and quiet spirit is in the sight of God of great price. And if we'll put, if we'll put God first in our decisions and, and the things where we're going to put the emphasis in our life, if, if we try to uh, you know, be concerned about the things that are valuable in the sight of God, Oftentimes, these other things that come up in life, you're still going to have problems in life. You're still going to have problems with people. There's still going to be problems in marriage. But if that's what your focus is, it allows you to put all the other things in perspective, you see. And and it's much more important to uh, seek the things that are going to be valuable in the sight of God. Verse 5 says, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God, adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Now, you see there that that in verse 5, it describes the holy women of old time. It says, they trusted in God. And that's where their trust was first. Their trust was not in their husband. Their trust was in God. You take a a woman here like Sarah, and you think about Sarah and Abraham. And, you know, there were things that that Abraham asked Sarah to do that were immoral things. Um, Likewise, there were, you know, there were things that Sarah suggested to Abraham that were uh, not right things in, in the sight of God. But that just shows you there are people like us, right? But you see, it says that, that Sarah trusted God. She adorned herself in the manner that verse 4 describes. She was in subjection to her husband. And 
it says that she, she obeyed Abraham. Now, she went to the extent even of calling him Lord. All right? That was the, the subjection. That was the, the, the reverence there that Sarah had for Abraham that she would call him Lord. And it says that, that uh, um, believing women are the daughters of Sarah, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and the end of verse 6, and are not afraid with any amazement. Now, verse, verse uh, 2 told you that your chaste conversation was supposed to be coupled with fear. Uh, verse 6 says not to be afraid. Um, but there's two different kinds of fear being talked about there. Back in verse 2, again, it's that, it's that respect. Here in, in verse 6, when it says are not afraid with any amazement, that has the idea of of being alarmed, or actually more like what we would talk about being afraid, okay? Not, not uh, a, a decent respect for a, a position of power and authority, but rather this is a, a, a again, more like what we would think of as, as fear or being afraid. And, I, you know, I wondered for a long time in that verse, in verse 6, what it, what's the fear it's talking about? Are not afraid with any amazement? Uh, you know, what, what is it that, that they would be afraid of, right? I mean, it says that it's talking here to, to these believing women, believing wives, and it says you're, Abraham, or you're Sarah's daughters as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. And, and the conclusion that I've come to about that verse is that it's talking about the fact that there are many women that are afraid to submit to their husbands, they're afraid that if they submit to their husbands, they're going to take advantage of it. I've, you know, I've, I've talked to women that have told me that, that they have to uh, be, you know, be domineering and, and controlling because if they were to submit to their husband, he would just, just take advantage of it and they, you know, it would wind up being bad for them. And again, much of that... now. There are some women, again, there are some women with the husbands that they have, that's probably a, a valid consideration. And it may be true. He might take advantage of it. But there's two things to consider. One thing is that the responsibility to submit is not, a, not so much a responsibility to your husband as it is a responsibility to God. And there are often negative consequences that come with obeying God. Right? There are times when you're going to obey God and it's going to mean that you get persecuted, that, that, you, that there is personal loss to you for obeying God. And so these commandments that come from God, it, it's true, there might be situations where if a wife were to submit to her husband in the way that these verses describe, that it may mean that he would take advantage of her. And that doesn't remove somebody from the responsibility to obey the verses. There are times where obeying the verses to, to, that say to preach the gospel might mean that you wind up in, in jail or in pl some places, even worse, you might wind up dead. Does that remove you from the responsibility to obey the verses? And see, if you look at it as a, a, an issue of obeying God rather than not, I mean, I, it talks there about Sarah obeying Abraham and that kind of thing, but she was doing that because she was trusting God. And so if you look at it as an issue of obeying God, and as one of those things, like so many other things in life, where you've got to choose, do I obey God, or do I follow my own reasoning? And, and you've got to make that choice. Do I obey God? 
but the second thing is that just like I described earlier, many times, many times that wife's assumption that her husband is going to take advantage of that is because all that husband's ever seen from his wife is that she's trying to compete with him and, and take that leadership position and she's trying to make him submit to her and so he responds in that defensive way. And there are many times where these fears that wives have that their husbands are going to take advantage of them are, are actually unfounded. And they would find that there would be certainly an, a, an adjustment period. There would certainly be a, uh, some time that it would take before that husband would begin to respond to it. But you see, you see what the verses describe. The verses describe that that disobedient husband is going to respond in general to, to uh, the chaste conversation of the wives rather than that, that wife trying to take that position of leadership. Now, verse 7 then addresses the husbands. We've talked about the wives enough, now the husbands. Verse 7 says, Likewise ye husbands, dwell, to, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. It tells the husbands to, to dwell with them according to knowledge. And, it, and the knowledge there would be the, the knowledge of these things from God's word. It tells the husbands to give honor to the wife as unto the, the weaker vessel. Now, some, some women get offended by that verse. You know, how, how dare the scripture call them the weaker vessel? What it's talking about there is saying to the husband that he's not to treat, you know, in, in the household you've got different kinds of vessels, right? You've got some things that are for very utilitarian purposes and they have to be uh, very durable, okay? If you've got a cast iron pot or something like that, you can bang that thing around and it's not going to hurt it, right? But then you've got things that are, you know, you've got vessels that are very delicate and very fragile. And it's not, it's not putting down the woman there calling her a weaker vessel. What it's saying to the husband is that the husband should not treat his wife like that cast iron pot that you can just bang around and not worry about it getting damaged. It's saying the husband should treat his wife as something that is fragile, that he needs to be careful about how he deals with that wife. Just like if you have some, you know, some, some valuable piece of porcelain or something that you don't want to, to get it chipped. You, you certainly don't want it. You know, I mean, if you, if you do very much with it, it's going to break altogether, but you don't even want it, want it to be chipped or, or anything like that. That's, saying, that's telling the husband how he's to treat his wife. Don't assume that your wife is tough and she can take it. Treat your wife like that, that valuable vessel. Uh, it says to dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. You see that, that this idea of honor, certainly we've seen how it talks about how the wife is to honor the husband, but the husband is to honor his wife as well. The husband is to give honor to his wife as unto the weaker vessel, and it says as being heirs together of the grace of life being heirs together of the grace of life, to view things not as, a, not as a competition, not as a competition about who's going to get their way more often, not as a competition about who's going to, who's going to rule, who's going to make the decisions and that kind of thing, but as being heirs together of the grace of life, as having the privilege of being able to spend life together. You see, that's, that's the way to look at it. And if you'll view your wife in that way, 
Now, that means you may have to change some things. It means you might have to change some, some of the ways you talk to your wife. It may change some of the things uh, that you, you require of your wife and the way you treat your wife. But that's the attitude there that it says that the husbands are to have toward their wives. I want to bring out a, a principle here from the Old Testament law. Go back to the book of Numbers. Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Go to Numbers chapter 30. You know that, that these issues of headship and submission, these aren't really, these aren't dispensational issues. Okay. Now, certainly we, we understand, you know, the things we've been talking about, about marriage being a, a picture of Christ and the church, they, they wouldn't have known that in the Old Testament, although, you know, much of that same symbolism is used in the relationship between God and Israel in the Old Testament. Okay. But, but uh, the, the instructions that are given in the Old Testament, many of them are just as, as valid today regarding marriage as what they were then. Okay, And there's a lot of things you can learn from the Old Testament law about how God views this, this marriage relationship and, again, what those, what those roles are of husband and wife. Now, here in Numbers 30, before we, before we read the verses here, there's a, a few things you have to understand, is this passage is going to talk about vows. And when, when you would take a vow in the Old Testament... That was a, a very serious thing. Even if it was a vow that was made just kind of, kind of off the cuff, it was a very serious thing. And it was especially important if you took a vow to the Lord or in the name of the Lord. In the, in the Ten Commandments, when it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, what that's really talking about is it's talking about invoking the name of, of God, uh, the name Jehovah or, or the Lord in our English Bible, uh, and invoking that name in order to, to give, you know, credibility to something you're, you're saying you're going to do, right? So, so if you say, I, I swear to the Lord I'm going to do such and such, um, that, was, that was taking a vow in the name of the Lord, and if you didn't perform that vow, then you had taken the name of the Lord God in vain, right? Because your failure, what, what you were doing was you were calling God as your witness that you were going to perform that thing. And so when you didn't perform it, what you did was you brought the name of the Lord into disrepute, okay? And this was considered such, a, such an important thing under the law that if you took a vow in the name of the Lord and did not perform that vow, the penalty was death. The penalty was death because you had profaned the name of the Lord God. Now, eventually what happened under Jewish tradition is that they just stopped using that name and speaking that name at all. The scripture doesn't say that they can't speak the name, the Lord, uh, or Jehovah. It says they can't take it in vain. And, and actually, if you, if you read anything that's written by uh, somebody who is an Orthodox Jew, or, or even you know some people that are, are uh, maybe not Orthodox, but but they take their, their Judaism seriously, even when they write the word God, you know, G-O-D, they'll write capital G and then put a dash and then a D because they don't want to write the name God and, and they don't want to take it in vain, okay? So these vows were a very serious thing. So if you took a vow, there there's situations in the Bible, for instance, there was a, a man who was coming back to his to his house and he was 
thankful to the Lord for some things that had happened. And he took a vow that when he got home, whatever came out of the door of the house first, he would sacrifice to the Lord. What happened, though, was when he got home, it was his little daughter that came out of the door. Now, he's got a choice to make. <laughs> does, he, does he profane the name of the Lord God by not keeping his vow, or does he commit an act which is, is abominable in, its, in itself, which is to sacrifice his daughter? And in that case, he sacrificed his daughter. Not only that, his daughter was in such subjection to him that she just willingly went along with it. She asked to have a, an extra month, um, and, and she went along with it. That tells you, now, you know, whether he did the right thing there or not, um, maybe you could make the case that the right thing would have been for him to, to break his vow and him be put to death rather than him putting his daughter to death. But it shows you how serious these vows were, right? That's how serious a vow to the Lord was. Now, let's look here at Numbers chapter 30. Because considering how serious those vows were, this this passage is going to reveal some things about the the authority there and the and the headship that takes place in marriage. Numbers chapter 30 verse 1 it says and Moses spake unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel saying this is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Now, you compare that with other verses, and you find out that the penalty for not performing that was to be put to death. Verse 3 says, If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord, and bind herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, And her father hear her vow and her bond, wherewith she hath bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her. Then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. But if her father disallow her in the day that he heareth, not any of her vows or of her bonds wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. And the Lord shall forgive her because her father disallowed her. Verse 6 now is where, where we wanted to get to. It says, And if she had at all an husband, when she vowed or uttered aught out of her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, and her husband heard it, and held his peace at her in the day that he heard it, then her vows shall stand, and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. But if her husband disallowed her on the day that he heard it, then he shall make her vow which she vowed, And that which she uttered with her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, of none effect, and the Lord shall forgive her. But every vow of a widow and of her that is divorced, wherewith they have bound their souls, shall stand against her. If she vowed in her husband's house, or bound her soul by a bond with an oath, and her husband heard it, and held his peace at her, and disallowed her not, then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. But if her husband hath utterly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatsoever proceeded out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the bond of her soul shall not stand. Her husband hath made them void, and the Lord shall forgive her. Um, Now, Kind of a long passage here to read, but we do need to get down a few more verses. It says, Every vow and every binding oath to afflict the soul, her husband may establish it, or her husband may make it void. But if her husband altogether hold his peace at her from day to day, then he establisheth all her vows, or all her bonds which are upon her. He confirmeth them, because he held his peace at her in the day that he heard them. 
But if he shall any ways make them void after that he hath heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife, between the father and his daughter, being yet in her youth in her father's house. Now, I don't know if you got all that, but what it says is that if a, if a woman makes a vow, now there's no, you know, if a man makes a vow, whether it be a, a man, you know, a man that's still a youth in his father's house or whether he's a, a grown man, if he makes a vow, he has to perform the vow no matter what. There's no way for him to get out of it. If he vows the vow, he has to perform it. But it's different for a wife. Now, it talks about a daughter, too, but we're talking about the wife. That if a wife makes a vow, even a vow unto the Lord, that she's going to do something, when her husband hears about it, he essentially has a veto over her vow. That if he wants to disallow it, he can disallow that vow, and she's not held responsible for it. But you see that if he, doesn't, if he just doesn't say anything, he can, you know, he can establish the vow by agreeing with it, or if he just doesn't say anything, then the vow is going to stand. But if she doesn't perform it, you see what it said at, at verse 15? If later he tries to do away with her vow, it says he shall bear her iniquity. Do you know that under the Old Testament law, and in fact, even, you know, even up into, into early American law, that a husband was responsible legally for the action of his wife. That's how serious these issues of headship were taken, is that, you know, in early America, a woman could not be taken into court. Um, her husband went into court. If a, you know, even if it was a serious crime or whatever, he went into court, and he paid the sentence oftentimes. Uh, here it says that if a woman makes a vow, even a vow unto the Lord that could be punishable by death, and her husband hears it, and he doesn't say anything, and he doesn't disallow her, but then later on he comes and says, no, you can't, you can't do that thing. He's the one who has to bear the iniquity. Now, this tells us some things about the, the authority that a husband has and also the responsibility that a husband has. The authority there is so great. God has, has delegated so much authority there that a man can... can protect his wife from something that another man would be put to death for, right? He can, he can take, you know, disallow this vow. He has one, one day to do it. The day he hears about it, he has until the end of that day to, to disallow it. If he doesn't, then it stands. And, and so there's great authority there that even God won't, won't step in the middle there. If a man takes a vow and, and then, you know, later that day tries to get out of it, the penalty is death. But if a woman takes a vow, her husband can, has the authority to disallow that vow. But in a way, this tells us even more about the responsibility of a husband. Um, you know that, that often, oftentimes, I'm sure you've experienced this in your marriage, uh, you know, a wife decides she's going to do something or get involved in something or, or, or whatever, just make some decision about the household. And the husband doesn't really agree with it, but he doesn't really say anything. And later, when something goes wrong, he says, see, I knew, I knew that was going to go wrong. I knew you shouldn't have done that, right? Now, he, he could have said, a man has the authority, on, based on verses like this. But what that husband should have done was taken responsibility at the beginning and said, no, I don't want you to do that. I don't, I don't think that's going to be a good thing to do. Not come, come along after the fact and, and say, see, I, I knew that was, <laughs> that was something bad. Do you, do you see the application I'm, I'm trying to make there? 
And there are many times where men are afraid to be authorities in their own home. And they're afraid for, for various reasons. You know, who, who knows what all the reasons are. Um, I, you know, I know a man who I've, I've talked to, and he talks about how his wife won't submit to his authority, but it's like, it's almost like he's waiting to get permission to be the authority in his home, right? So he'll say, well, I can't, I can't make this decision for my family because I know my wife isn't going to follow it or, or whatever. He, you know, he's, again, he's waiting for it. Could you imagine, could you imagine anybody else in any other position of authority? Could you imagine a, a general in the army saying, I can't give that private that order because I know he's not going to follow it? You know, that's not the way the authority works. And, and there are men who are afraid to be the authority in their home. Now, part of the reason sometimes that men are afraid to be the authorities is there's a lot of responsibility that comes with authority. You see the responsibility that a man has here either to confirm that vow or to disallow that vow. And, and there are men who don't want to take that responsibility, and so they just don't say anything. And they'll just complain about it after the fact and, and that kind of thing. Um, but... I hope, I hope you've seen through some of these passages that authority that God gives to a husband. Don't, you know, don't pass things off on your wife. There's, there's something I, I try to do. I don't, I don't know how successful I am at it. But if there's something that, that, you know, something that I disagree with my wife or whatever, I'll talk to her about it, but I don't talk to anybody else about it. Um, I, you know, unless I've, Unless there's some times I don't, I don't remember. I, I bet you can't probably think of a time where I've said something about, you know, blame something on my wife. And, and there's even times where I've had to, um, you know, something that maybe my, my flesh said in talking to somebody else, I should say that was because Brooke did something. It was her fault. You know, and I think about verses like this, and I think, well, wait a second. I can't, if we're one flesh and I'm the head, then... There's nothing that's my wife's fault. There's nothing that's her fault. It's, it's my fault, right? If, if there's some problem or whatever, it, it's my fault. Now, pride doesn't want you to do that. Pride wants you to pass it off on somebody else. But that's, you know, that's the issue in headship. And again, when we think about that verse that we started with, uh, when it said about husbands loving your wives, remember how that, that passage talked about the love of Christ for the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. How did Christ sanctify and cleanse the church? Didn't he do it by taking all of the church's faults upon himself, and he became guilty for it? Think about what, men, what security you can provide for your wife if you'll take the blame, even, even for her bad decisions, right? Like, you know, if you didn't say anything to stop her at the beginning when you knew about it, you take the blame for it. You bear the iniquity like, like the verse said back there. And again, we have that picture. That's, that's what Christ did for the church. Um, the, when, you, when you hear teaching on these subjects of headship and submission, people and, and preachers often are guilty of taking it and just being an issue about who has to obey who and who gets to set the rules and that kind of thing. And I hope you see it's much more than that. And I hope you see that while it's true there's great responsibility placed on a wife to submit to her husband, the responsibility that it places on a husband 
is even greater. Men, don't, don't, just, don't just pull rank and resort to the fact that you have authority. There's great responsibility that's placed there to be as Christ was for the church. And, and if there was something wrong in the church, if there was some iniquity in the church, Christ took that upon himself. See, he took responsibility for it, and he did what was necessary to deal with it. And, and so the responsibility is not just one way. It's not just a responsibility of a wife to, to submit to her husband, but it's a responsibility of both to, again, reflect that relationship between Christ and the church. And, um, you know, I hope, I hope you've gotten something useful out of these passages and out of these messages and and you know there's many more passages that we can go to but if you if you understand if you understand that that basic principle that marriage is to be a picture of Christ in the church what it means is that that even if you're in a passage that isn't directly about marriage but it's about what Christ has done for us or if you're in a passage about what what the church's responsibility is to Christ that's a, that's a passage about marriage as well see it as application to your marriage. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone, 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.